Worldwide, COVID-19 is spreading in large, low- and middle-income countries like Brazil and India. Meanwhile, it's spiking in nearly half of American states. And the American economy is officially in a recession. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. It's been 21 days since George Floyd was murdered. Protests kicked off almost immediately, reaching their peak the next weekend, 17 days ago. Right afterwards, pundits and politicians, both well-meaning and otherwise, asked the seemingly obvious question. Would these protests kick off a second pandemic wave? Reopening efforts are complicated by the sweeping protests following the death of George Floyd. We're certainly going to see transmission coming out of these gatherings. There's no question about that. That hasn't really happened, at least not yet. If massive protests had led to surges in COVID-19 transmission, we'd expect serious upticks in COVID-19 cases in states like Minnesota, New York, and Washington, where protests were the largest. But in those states, COVID-19 cases are actually steady or dropping. And to be clear, the incubation period, the time it takes for someone who is infected to have symptoms, is up to 14 days, but usually around five days. And given that the peak protests were 17 days ago, we've passed that five-day mark three times over. It's not that it's impossible. Of course, we could see cases trending up linking back to the protests. But it's not inevitable, like some people wanted us to think. So why might it be that massive protests haven't driven COVID-19 transmission? For one, protests were outside, and they were mostly mobile. Protesters walked throughout the protests. That means that the respiratory droplets that drive transmission may not be as likely to hang in the air where other people could be exposed to them. And many, though not all, took particular care to wear masks and practice as much social distancing as possible. But make no mistake, just because COVID-19 cases haven't spiked in places with the largest protests doesn't mean it's not spiking at all. In fact, in 23 of 50 U.S. states, cases are on the rise. Despite what some in the White House are saying, there are alarming new numbers about the coronavirus in the U.S. Arizona and Texas today setting new state records for hospitalizations. Florida's numbers soaring. You know which states those tend to be? States where governors were slow to lock down in the first place and quick to open back up. In these states, governors almost always use the economy as a primary motivator. But last week, the National Bureau of Economic Research announced this. The coronavirus recession is official. The National Bureau of Economic Research is the arbiter of America's economic booms and busts. It found the nation's longest expansion ended in February and a recession began. It forces us to reconsider the line that politicians have taken throughout this crisis, that we could have public health or our economy, but not both. And now they have neither. COVID-19 cases are on the rise and the economy is in a recession. We asked you how COVID-19 is affecting your financial outlook. And here's what you had to say. One place we've noticed that our budget and spending has increased a lot since this pandemic started is on groceries. We've gotten better at not overbuying, but I think that there's still a sense of panic whenever I'm in a grocery store. And I typically feel that I need to buy more than we actually need. I worked from home for about three weeks from mid-March to the beginning of April. And on April 2nd, I was furloughed. My husband is an engineer and his company is currently working from home and with his usual income and my unemployment checks, we are actually making a little more a week than we did when we were both working. 
Uh, during the pandemic, I've started a mask making business, which is doing really well. Um, and my husband was able to get unemployment to go through um, eventually. And he is using this time and, and money to start his own business in food manufacturing. I don't see myself returning to the office anytime soon. Um, unfortunately, I lost my mother due to COVID and don't know how to put this perfectly into words, but being in quarantine has trapped my grieving slash mourning in a way that having to leave quarantine will force me to recognize that my mom is really gone. I don't leave my house much, except to walk my now three dogs. Two of my dogs were my mom's um, that now live with me. That has actually changed my spending. Um, I now have to afford food and care for three dogs versus one. Back in early April, just as COVID was hitting us the hardest, I spoke with macroeconomist Professor Tara Sinclair about how COVID could affect the economy. We'll catch up with her more than two months later about what happened and what we can expect going forward after the break. Friends, if you like this podcast and taking a deeper dive into the pathology that we face in our society, I hope you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. I diagnose the epidemic of insecurity, which I believe explains the moment that we're in right now. I hope that you'll check it out. Healing Politics at healingpoliticsbook.com. My guest today is our first repeat on America Dissected. Professor Tara Sinclair is a macroeconomist, and she uh, she came on the show back in in April, April seventh to be specific, uh, which feels like light years ago to talk about what the economic fallout of COVID nineteen might be. She joins us again today. Tara, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So the last time we chatted, uh, we were looking at what was the financial and economic cliff. Congress had just passed their first tranche of COVID relief. And we were talking about what this might look like. Can you run us through some of the numbers you're looking at to give us a sense of where we are economically and what that might mean for us? Well, basically, if we think about where we've gone just over you know, the, the last month and a half or so, we went from um, a free fall uh, in March and April to now where it, we've kind of become numb to these very large numbers. And so if we think about what's been happening with unemployment insurance claims, for example, um, we had as many as you know, over 6 million in one week. And now, you know, last week, it, it, in, in some sense, it felt like a relief to only see 1.2 million more claims. And, and yet that was a number we had never seen before uh, the first time we saw them back in March. Uh, before that, a million claims was an absurd number of claims in a week. Uh, and now we're looking at you know, something near you know, one in four people having you know, looked at you know, applying for claims. And these numbers are just so hard to wrap our heads around. Hmm. And, and we talked last time a little bit about the, the tools and when you might use them. And I guess the first question that, you know, that, that's on everybody's mind is, where is this going? And... Uh, you had some, you know, concerns about "quote unquote" reviving the economy and the tools that we had to doing that. Um, what's your assessment now? Uh, is this going to be sort of, as they say, a V-shaped recovery, or mm-hmm. um, are the tools that we have big enough to be able to resuscitate the economy? And what does resuscitation even mean uh, as this has lasted? 
Yeah, unfortunately, I think we've missed the window for a V-shape recovery. And we've missed that window for a, a couple of reasons. One was that when we were thinking about a V-shape recovery, we were thinking about the economy being shut down for a couple of months and then roaring back once we figured out how to control the virus. Uh, but it, it seems clearly like it's going to take us a lot longer to figure out how we are really going to manage the virus in a way that people overall feel safe doing the same kinds of activities that they were doing before the, the virus came. Uh, so that, that's one reason. But the other reason is that we had this large amount of fiscal spending initially in response, but then there's been this reticence to go further. And without that additional economic support, we're seeing that households are already really pulling back and saying, well, I better save the little money that I have because I don't know when I'm going to see another paycheck. And if they're not spending, that's cutting back on other people's potential to get a paycheck. Mm. So in, in so many ways, when, when the debate was raging about, quote unquote, opening up, Borrowing from the conversation that we shared last time, that was kind of the supply side, right? It's like, when does the supply of the economy open up? But from what you're saying now is that consumers aren't so confident that they're going to be able to have enough money for the future. So even as things open up, it's not like we're going to see the spending that, that we expect. Exactly. Well, and in fact, we're, we're seeing that in other countries as well. So countries, even ones that have been able to really control the virus well, are also seeing difficulties in the demand side for their economy. People are still pulling back and you know, we're all globally linked. And so if there are still countries that are facing you know, both health and economic challenges, that affects other groups as well. And you know, here in the U.S., we definitely haven't yet controlled the virus and therefore People are afraid to spend money, both because they're worried about having enough financial wherewithal to spend, but they're also still concerned about going out to the stores and engaging in normal economic activities. Mm. So from what you're saying, it's not even just that you're worried about whether or not you're going to have enough money for tomorrow. It's also that you're worried about whether or not you're going to get COVID-19. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's we heard uh, from uh, certain quarters that uh, there was fear that the the treatment was worse than the disease. And from what you're saying, it seems like the treatment wasn't strong enough to actually kill the disease. And here we are with the problem. Right. Yes. Yeah. So now we're stuck in this terrible in-between land where we haven't yet treated the fundamental health problem, which is necessary before we can re really restart the economy. And yet we're trying to restart the economy. And you know, we're, we're seeing that individuals say like, OK, our policymakers and our leaders are saying that we can go go back and go to work and go shopping, but they still don't feel safe to do so. And that's going to be their choice to, to not go into the marketplace. You know, I've always used this analogy uh, about a blackout versus a brownout that, you know, we sort of blacked out the economy. Um, but, you know, the thing about a blackout is once the electricity goes back on, your lights go back on. And it may be that right now we're actually browning out the economy, which may be worse, right? Because the lights go back on, but your circuits are all fried. H how much do you feel that this sort of low-level din of economic activity is actually going to send the wrong signals in the economy and then lead to the kind of real uh, financial collapse that, that, you know, depressions and recessions are made of? Yeah, that's hard because on the one hand, I really love that analogy and I think it makes a lot of sense in a lot of cases. Uh, on the economy, however, it, 
if we were low level keeping everyone engaged in the economy, that might be good. We want to keep people connected to the labor market. It helps kind of preserve their skills and preserve their connection to potential employers so that maybe you know they might work a few hours now, but then later they might be able to just raise their hours and that could be much easier to restart and you know, elevate the economy than if people had to go from zero back to 40 hours a week. Uh, but it, that's not really what we're, we're seeing because we're seeing some people who are working their regular job, their regular hours, or even more so. Um, you know, and that's both people who are able to work from home, but also people who are you know, frontline workers. Mm-hmm. And then we're seeing other people who are working zero hours. Mm. And so that means that, the, that we are still, you know, it, it's, I, I don't know what the right electricity analogy is for that, but it's, 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 it's we're running, you know, some people really hard and other, other people are you know, massively underutilized. Mm. So it really speaks to, you know, an underlying inequality mm-hmm. uh, in this economy that's been deeply exacerbated by COVID-19. And, um, you know, we've seen that both on the front of who the disease has disproportionately affected uh, and then also what livelihoods that the the economic fallout uh, seems to have affected. Had we wanted to get this right in the first place, what would we have done? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, and of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? If if we could go back, you know, so I, ideally we would go back and be like one of the countries that had been able to really. It, strongly control the virus and go back to what we had kind of hoped and originally planned that it would only take a couple of months to get to a position where we could go back to you know, work and life as, as more normal. But if we could go back and tell ourselves, hey, we're not going to be able to do that, you know, we might have designed policies somewhat differently, but it's it's hard. It, it, this is not an environment any of us want to be in. And this is not an environment where we want to plan to be like this forever. I, I don't know how we run the economy in this sort of health uncertainty environment. Uh, so I, I think we, we channel resources tra- to continuing to address the, the health uncertainty. That's really where we've got to focus. So I'm hearing we really needed to tackle the virus in a very firm mm-hmm. way and have a sense of where the, the virus's epidemic curve was going. Uh, in order to be able to make economic sense of of this moment, absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's no you know controversy here between like the economy and public health. We need to get public health right, and then we can focus on the economy. So, if you could snap your fingers right now, and all of a sudden uh, you you would be the um, the the Zarina of uh, of the United States, what would you do to stabilize this economy um, and get us into into good financial straits? Well, again, the first thing is to really pour resources into addressing not just a a potential vaccine, which is, of course, one area we we definitely want to focus on, but all forms of understanding the virus more. Because the more we understand it, the the more clarity we can have on the science, the the better decisions that households can make, they can evaluate their risk better the better decisions that businesses can make. And that's going to help the, the economy Im- improve more quickly. And then other than that, you know, we've got to be supporting you know, particularly the households that are directly impacted in this time, but also not neglect the, the ones who might be indirectly 
affected. And I always like to think about carrots versus sticks here. Um, you know, there's, there's two ways to think about pe getting people to participate in the economy. One is to make it very unpleasant to not participate in the economy. The other is to make it very appealing to participate in the economy. And I think we really need to be focusing on that latter carrots approach to where right now there are a lot of reasons why people might not want to be participating in the economy because it might be risk risking their health. But, you know, if we provide things like hazard pay, that would compensate people for taking some of the risk. And I think that's a really important thing to be thinking about uh, for economic incentives. Um, so I'm hearing, you know, a couple of, of key things. We've got to make it far less dangerous for people to participate. We've got to give them the means of participating, meaning literally putting dollars in people's pockets. And we've got to we've got to compel them to come back to the economy because, you know, it makes sense to spend now. You know, all of that goes by the wayside if we have a second spike. Um, can you project what would happen if, you know, that scenario happened where we get a second serious spike after, quote unquote, opening back up that forces us all back into our homes, takes another, you know, hundred, if not more thousand lives and has a disproportional impact on low income and people of color? What would the impact of, of that be long term on the economy? Well, so first of all, that's a, a devastating impact on, on humanity, uh, but it, it is also, it, it has you know, the direct effects of you know, moving more people out of the potential labor force, and, but also spikes uncertainty even more, which will probably cause households to pull back even more on their spending and will likely make what is already a catastrophic economic situation even worse. And, I mean, we're already, even under the certain, you know, the, the, the current conditions, we're still looking at forecasts from the Congressional Budget Office, uh, you know, a nonpartisan agency. They're saying that it's going to take 10 years for us to get back to the economy that they were predicting just a few months ago. So if we think about that kind of recovery based on current information, imagine if, if things get worse. Yeah. The, the other thing that, you know, can't um, lose sight of is not just the macroeconomy in total, but, but also um, the differential impact it has on different groups of people. And, you know, of course, uh, we're speaking in the context of a profound uh, outpouring of righteous anger right now. And, you know, in response to the lynching of a, of a black man by, by police, you know, a lot of this can't be divorced from the fact that the impact of COVID-19 in lives and livelihoods lost uh, have been also disproportional. One of the fears I have, uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine who is um, in finance, um, he, he said, you know, the, the crazy thing right now is that there's a, because of the the way that the Fed has responded, is that there's a lot of capital out there to be invested. And that capital tends to go to the largest firms, the ones who, who are most likely to survive this, and actually allows them to invest and um, further strengthen their position in, in a market. So what we might see is you know, less um, small businesses and more consolidation at the top. Um, you know, one of the people who've come out the best out of, out of COVID-19 is the richest man in America, um, who is Jeff Bezos. So, you know, what does it mean for access to the economy for low-income folks and smaller businesses and their owners coming into this moment where we see a lot of capital and investment in businesses, but only at the very top of, those, of, of the business structure? Yeah, I think that's really important to focus on. And I think if we just let things kind of roll along, we are at a point where the economy was already 
facing some pretty severe inequality and this crisis is going to make it worse without direct effort to prevent that. Um, I do have some optimism that you know, we we might use this opportunity to, to improve inequality um, in, in part because we have to be spending more money right now to support the economy. And so it, it, this is an opportunity to rebalance things somewhat with smart policy over time. It won't necessarily be the first policy we do. The first policy we do, you know, it's got to be, you know, we're still in that crisis phase of we just need timely money out and we're not going to be able to do it so targeted. But hopefully if we need support over the, the medium term, which it looks like we're going to, we can start to do some smarter policies that can possibly change the structure of the way that our currently very unequal income distribution is, is hitting the economy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it strikes me that the PPP program, the Paycheck Protection Program, was intended to be partly that, right? We're, we're supporting smaller businesses. And, uh, you know, and then we hear that, you know, $411 million goes to Marathon Petroleum. Um, I also, you know, worry about what the impact of consolidation of employers means for employees, right? Because there has been this issue of what they, what uh, economists, uh, you guys call monopsony, uh, this idea that if there are, there are fewer um, businesses in the market, then they in effect can collude on the pricing that they offer labor, um, which means that everybody's uh, labor is less valuable per sector. D- is there a way for us to, you know, to protect against that beyond like, you know, empowering unions and maybe raising the floor and a minimum wage? Is there something else that uh, that we ought to be doing make sure, to make sure we're protecting employees, not just from losing their jobs, but from losing the value of their paycheck? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really complicated issue. And I, I do think it, it depends somewhat on you know, how how things shake out. You know, obviously, uh, there are lots of reasons why we value new businesses in the economy. And the classic story you know, people talk about, you know, small business is the backbone of America. And a lot of economists are like, well, actually, it's new businesses. That's where a lot of employment growth happens. That's where a lot of innovation happens. That's where a lot of people get the opportunity to expand their skill set, to develop and jump into new roles and then potentially uh, move more quickly through a structure. You know, if it's a flatter structure, you might have more opportunities to to grow. And so I think that that's something we probably want to have specific policies aimed towards supporting smaller business and and just generally supporting more competition between businesses, which I think is, you know, that's like the classic economist market view of things, which is different from being business friendly, right? I mean, this is actually, this makes it pretty hard for businesses if you have a lot of competition, um, but that can be beneficial to to workers if businesses are having to to compete over people to to come and be their their talent, if you will. And so we need to have incentives again. You know, economists are always just going to keep saying the, the right incentives to to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So as as we watch and uh, as we continue forward, can can you tell our listeners what are the numbers you watch to to get a sense of of where we're going and and what are you looking for in those numbers? Sure. Well, so you know, obviously, as a as a macroeconomist, a lot of the numbers that I'm watching are around you know, gross domestic product growth, uh, employment numbers of various kinds. One of the challenges, though, right now is that a lot of those numbers are delayed. So we'd really like to know what's happening in terms of you know, American production right now uh, this quarter, 
but we're not going to get the first estimates of what's happened in the second quarter of 2020, which has really been where a lot of the action has come, until the end of July. Uh, and so we're waiting on that. So we're watching a lot of forecasts that are looking you know, pretty, pretty dismal, but we also know, you know forecasts um, are particularly inaccurate at, at time, you know, dramatic upheavals. So really looking forward to seeing those numbers. But you know, we're having to dig a little deeper for economic indicators right now. And people are watching all sorts of really interesting things uh, from you know, private companies Right now, you know, everything from you know, tracking various job postings to uh, open table reservations to uh, traffic on the streets, mobile phone usage, like all sorts of interesting indicators. And the, the key thing that we're, we're seeing across all of those different you know, various indicators is that hopefully we, we're basically maybe at the trough if things don't get worse again, right? So, so we saw this terrible freefall. Uh, from about mid-March. But the last two or three weeks, basically all of these early economic indicators that are only showing what's happening in certain sectors maybe are you know, flattening out, which hopefully means that this is as bad it's going to get and we have a chance to climb from here. But it could also turn down again, it, you know, particularly if we get you know, worse news, we have to start you know, shutting some of the, the small openings we've, we've seen in the economy so far. Well, we can only uh, we can only hope that we don't have to go back there and uh, do what it takes to take on this virus. And I really appreciate your reminder that uh, there is no competition between the virus or the economy. This is a false dichotomy that the only way around COVID-19 is through COVID-19, and we really need to do what it takes to defeat it. Really appreciate you being on the show again. Um, hope that you and your family are staying safe, and uh, hope that I hope that for my own selfish reasons, the next time we connect is not over COVID-19, uh, actually for all of our reasons, but, um, but hope that we get to connect again. Yes, me too. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Globally, COVID-19 is on the rise in some of the world's biggest low- and middle-income countries, like India and Brazil. And as we've discussed, these countries are particularly vulnerable to COVID as millions of their people live in crowded conditions like favelas or slums without ready access to sanitation. Meanwhile, their leaders have followed the American example, opening up early with no sign of shutting down again. I'm also watching our own narrative about COVID-19 here at home. COVID is not over. The CDC, in fact, is projecting an additional 25,000 deaths by early July. But even if COVID isn't over people seem to be over COVID. Even though we're no longer under lockdown, we should still be practicing harm reduction strategies that Professor Marcus laid out last week, avoiding public places when we can, wearing masks in public, washing hands and sanitizing regularly. These are the things we have to do to prevent a second major surge. And maybe more worrying is how we might respond if, in fact, a second surge comes. Will we have the discipline and patience to do what we need to save countless more lives and livelihoods? If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. And here at Crooked Media, we're organizing to get a new president. After all, that really has to be the solution right now. That means winning key states like mine, Michigan. We gave America the car, the union, and Motown. And with your help, we're going to give America a new president. Join us at Team Michigan at votesaveamerica.com. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. 
Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taki Yasuzawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.